At the beginning of a year, uh, I have found it helpful to try to focus on God rather than focus on myself. I, th I think uh, there's plenty to focus on when we think about our wonderful sovereign God, who he is and what he has done and what he has promised. Uh, when I think of myself, it's, well, my challenges and my issues and uh, my goals and my aspirations. But they seem to fade. As a matter of fact, I have observed, at least for me, that if I can turn my attention toward my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, some of these other concerns that I have seem to be resolved all by themselves without me trying or doing anything about it. So today, I would like to draw our attention to this God that we purport to worship. There are a number of passages of Scripture that reveal him in very, very vivid ways. Passages like Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, where Jonah figures out that God is, quote, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now Moses figured out the same thing in Exodus 34. David came to those conclusions as well in Psalm 86, and fellow prophet Joel also saw that about God in his book, chapter 2. Today, I would like to examine one of the character traits of God listed in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, namely, the God who relents concerning calamity. Now, it's mentioned there in chapter 4, verse 2, but it's teased out in Jonah chapter 3, and I'm going to deal with that passage this morning and dive in. But before I do, uh, I think it is important to kind of share a brief synopsis with you as to what the book of Jonah is all about. Here's a, an eight-point kind of uh, lesson that you can learn, and you'll know exactly what Jonah is about. Jonah uh, is about the following. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah refuses and runs. God throws him into the belly of a fish. Jonah changes his mind. God changes his mind and allows him to go preach. He goes to, he goes to Nineveh and preaches. The Ninevites repent. God repents, and Jonah gets mad. That's really the book of Jonah. It's a whole book of turning and changing and it ends in a very tragic way. Jonah is ticked off at God. Of course, he was ticked off with God at the beginning, but he went through some significant changes, but ended up back where he was at the beginning. I think it's also important for us to understand what the, what the main gist or the main storyline of the book of Jonah is, and maybe it's helpful to say what it's not first. It is not about the prophet Jonah and his love-hate relationship with God. It is not about the citizens of Nineveh and their wholesale turning from their wickedness unto God. It is not about the Assyrian Empire and its noted brutality in how it treated those whom it conquered and who were its enemies. It's not about the fish who swallowed Jonah whole. 
Jonah is not about primarily missions. It's not about evangelism, namely going into the streets with God's message or wherever else. The book of Jonah is primarily about God. It is primarily about God, namely his recurrent, his unexplainable, his pursuing, his extravagant mercy. That's what Jonah is all about. May I repeat, it is not about anything else primarily. It is about God and his mercy and the demonstration of that mercy. So I've entitled my remarks this morning, The Second Chance God. The Second Chance God. And I would like to read now from Jonah chapter 3. Follow, please. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it to the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This passage can be divided very simply into three sections. Verses 1 through 4 chronicles for us the second chance that Jonah got. Verses 4 through 9 chronicles the second chance that Nineveh received from God. And verse 10, it's a little more difficult to try to phrase what verse 10 is all about. I would like to say verse 10 is the big deal. Verse 10 is the wow. Verse 10 is a picture of this second chance God and what he accomplishes. So let's dive in. First of all, verses 1 through 4, a second chance for Jonah. I have four observations of these verses. First of all, God gave Jonah a second chance to live. Now, let's think about it for just a minute. God would have been very gracious. If you go back and read chapters 1 and 2 again, God would have been very just in letting Jonah sink to the bottom of the ocean, die, and let the sea creatures devour his carcass. He would have been fully just in doing that as a consequence 
of Jonah's radical disobedience and rebellion against his clear directives. So Jonah gets a second chance to live. Secondly, God gave Jonah a second chance to say yes. He offered him another opportunity. It's as if God says, okay, now that uh, you're alive and I've answered your pleas in chapter 2, here's another chance for you to serve me. Uh, I like the, the comparison of verse 1 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 3. And the difference between the two is the word second time. People usually only get one chance to serve God, and he has now a second opportunity to serve God. There is also uh, an observation that I think is very, very encouraging, and that is simply this. Disobedience had not rendered Jonah ineligible for service. Uh, think that through just a little bit. <laughs> Jonah gets another chance to serve God. Now, this is kind of the way it is. We can trace things through Scripture and see the same thing time and time again. Perhaps the, post, the most notable in the New Testament is Peter. Here he is, denying God himself and the person of Jesus Christ in John chapter 18. But we come to John 21, and Peter is restored to service. And then you read through his great accomplishments on behalf of God in the book of Acts, and it's, it's incredible that he moved from there to there. And God is in that business. As a matter of fact, I kind of have concluded something. God has an inventory of persons that could serve him. Every one of them are sinners. Every single one are rebels against him. He only has the option, from a human perspective, of choosing sinners. And so he does here. And Jonah was one who received second opportunity to say yes to God. The third thing is found in verse 2 also. God gave Jonah a second chance to declare God's message, a second chance to live, a second a chance to serve him, and a second chance to declare his message. Literally, Jonah was to preach the preaching or proclaim the proclamation. The terms have the idea of a summons. It has authority attached to it, as a matter of fact, where you are going to name the name of God. In other words, Here's what Jonah got to do. He got to go and speak on behalf of God, and he got to speak with authority. Now, to be very honest with you, I'm not really interested in sitting underneath the voice of a pastor or anyone else who gets in the pulpit and does not speak with authority. And the only way you speak with authority is what? You proclaim the proclamation. You preach the preaching. You say what God says to say. And that is what Jonah got to do. He got to proclaim the proclamation. God himself provided the content of this message. That's what verse 2 tells us. Here's the point. Jonah was to, compare, was to uh, proclaim the mind and message of the Lord. He was not to share his own preferences and his own opinions. And we know something about what Jonah's preferences of opinions were. 
He was totally against even sharing the truth with these wicked Assyrian people. And yet, he was required by God to say what God said, to say the message God told him to say. Surely we need preachers with the mindset like that even today. Just preach the word. Leave the rest to God. Just preach the word. I don't know who said it to me first or if it was original with that person, but I've often realized the significance of this little statement. Preacher, you take care of the depth of your ministry and let the Lord take care of its breadth. I think that's true. And I don't know about you, but I am grateful to be part of a church whose preaching pastor does the same thing, who preaches the word to us and lets the word of God fill our hearts and minds and the spirit of God change us and make us after the mind of Christ. That is refreshing. Jonah was also to go to Nineveh without knowing the specific content of the proclamation. Just go, Jonah. Don't worry about it. You just go. Arise, get up, and just go. That leads us then to verses 3 and 4. So Jonah gets these second chances. And verses 3 and 4 tell us that Jonah grabbed the second chance. How might we describe his obedience? Four words. It was decisive. The command was to rise and go. Jonah arose and went. Quite different than what happened in chapter 1. He made a 180-degree turn. It was precise. He obeyed exactly as the Lord had directed. Notice the phrase, according to the word of the Lord. It was immediate. He obeyed without delay. Arising, Jonah went, implies immediacy. And when he hit the city limits, he opened his mouth and began to preach what God had told him to preach. He did not hesitate. And fourth, his obedience was courageous. He did go, after all, to Nineveh, a large pagan leading city of the powerful Assyrian Empire, that was known for striking terror into the hearts of its conquered peoples and treating them in a brutal and inhuman way. They were feared, and Jonah went there in the depths and midst of the enemy itself. So Jonah gets a second chance from this second chance God. Let's now move on to Nineveh. Nineveh receives a second chance. It's spoken of now in the Rest of verse 4 through verse 9. First of all, the second chance included a threat of judgment. Jonah began his trek through the city, and he had one message. You're going to be overthrown. The word there really means overturned. And it's the word that's the same language used in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18, where they were talking about total destruction, annihilation. So here's Jonah walking through the city, and that's the message he has been told to preach. Tell them they're going to be judged. Tell them the wrath of God is going to come upon them, and they're going to be wiped out from man to woman, child, everyone else, beast, pets, everything, gone. That's the message. 
Now, I, I want to be careful I don't Mother Hubbard this. It's real easy to Mother Hubbard things when you get into the prophets. But, you know, I had a, I had a classmate of mine in some of my, my work, uh, academic work, uh, who told the whole class that their great evangelism push was to put up signs at football games with John 3.16 on the sign, hoping that the cameras would catch it and everyone would see John 3.16. So he showed us a clip, and there it was, behind the goalposts. That was the best place to do it because they kicked field goals and points after touchdowns right there. And John 3.16, guess what? His quotation of John 3.16 left out the perishing part. So he was questioned on that. Well, you have a typo here. He left out perishing. He said, no, that was on purpose. I, I don't like to talk about perishing. Let's just talk about the love of God, not the wrath of God. I wonder if Jonah would have changed his message, what would have happened? Oh, God, judgment, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's not talk about judgment. Let's just talk about something more pleasing to people. <laughs> or maybe he would be a person who would not do well spending years and having no converts. <laughs> but he just declared the word of God. And it was a message of judgment. However, we also understand that the second chance included a, an extended period for repentance, an extended period for repentance. For we are told here that, and, and it's an assumption of some sort, that God was allowing 40 days before he would judge. And the assumption is he was allowing 40 days so that they might repent before the judgment. At least that's what the people were hoping for in verse 5 that God would do that, whether or not Jonah explained it clearly or not. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why Jonah fled to Tarshish, because Jonah knew God. And he knew, I know what you're going to do, God. I'm going to go there and preach, and those rascals are going to repent, and I know what you're going to do. You're going to let them get off the hook. Repentance was possible. They had 40 days. Now, don't ask me to explain why 40 days. I haven't figured it out. And um, maybe you could tell me afterwards. There's, there's several things that are suggested, but not the point. God is allowing time for repentance. And Jonah didn't like that at the beginning, but he's changed his mind, and now he's going to preach that. So the Ninevites had an opportunity to repent. So they had the matter of judgment, they had the matter of repentance, and guess what? They did the same thing Jonah did. They grabbed their second chance, verses 5 through 9. Three words describe what's going on in the city of Nineveh. Faith, this was a stunning citywide awakening. The text says that the people of Nineveh believed God. 
Same phraseology used of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. It's a word that really means saying yes to God. It sounds a lot like our English word, amen. Thus, I am concluding that this was a genuine faith on the behalf of these Ninevites. It wasn't pseudo-faith. Christ apparently thought it was genuine when he said in Matthew chapter 12, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Genuine faith. Now the next question is even more stunning. Does it include the entire city? Well, it sure looks that way. Apparently, the news of Jonah's preaching spread like wildfire through the city. The language leads to this conclusion that it was universal in the city, for it says the people of the city from the least to the greatest. And then later on in chapter 4, it even gives a number, 120,000. All of this, in my book, infers a citywide repentance and turning to God. If so, this is a mass conversion in a ridiculously brief period of time. All of them turned to God. How in the world can we explain this? I mean, what's going on here? I think at the beginning, we, we need to understand something. Apparently, the Ninevites were convinced that God had the power to do what he said he was going to do. He had the power to kill them all. I think they came to that conclusion, which leads me to the simple statement that only the mighty power of God offers any sense in this whole scenario. His power and his power alone is the explanation for what's happening here by way of this awakening. It cannot be that Jonah was a brilliant salesperson. Now, I don't know really anything more about Jonah other than what the scripture tells us, but I don't think that his brilliant personality or his wonderful ability to, to close the sale had anything to do with this. Not at all. Sorry, there's not much material here for an evangelism methodology class, except preach the word and get out of the way. That would be a pretty good lesson. Just preach the word, stand back, and let God do his thing. We do have the record of Romans chapter 1, don't we? <laughs> the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation to everyone who believes. So the first word is faith. The second word which describes what's going on in Nineveh is fruit. The awakening was accompanied by mourning for sin. Faith had evidences. It always does. Here it begins with sorrow for sin. The practice of dressing in sackcloth and smearing ashes on the face is a typical sign of mourning in that day. Apparently what happened here is that these people became sensitive to their sins Overnight, they suddenly saw things differently. The New Testament counterpart to this notion is found in Acts 26.20 where Paul said to his hearers, they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate for repentance. 
Even the king of Nineveh, probably a regional Syrian governor of some sort, believed, and he traded in his royal robes for sackcloth and ashes. We have faith, we have fruit, and then we have change. Change, the awakening was reinforced by an edict from the king. First of all, this edict demand that the people fast and pray. I think he's speaking to people individually. All people should fast and pray. Now this praying was not a garden variety type of prayer. Rather, it is described here by the word earnest, earnest prayer. The term means force. Some translate this word violent. It carries the notion of men actually before God on their knees begging him with all of their heart, soul, and mind to spare them. I had a vivid memory of this as a kid, teenage kid growing up in small town Iowa, rural type church, little town of 3,000 people. We had back in those days, Wednesday night prayer meeting. And my family was the kind that whenever the doors of the church were open, we were there. So there we would go, all four of us kids went to prayer meeting, and here's what happened. The pastor got up, gave a little devotional, and then we split. The men went downstairs to pray, the women stayed upstairs, and the kids, whomever they were, went at the appropriate place. I don't know what they did with babies, I've forgotten that. You know, you, you, some of the things you, you don't remember clearly. But I vividly remember going downstairs with those men, some farmers, some merchants, some tradesmen, some educators, a variety of men, old and young and, and everything in between. And they pulled out the folding chairs, put them around in a circle, and they knelt down on the cold, concrete, unpainted floor on their knees and prayed. I don't even think they had, well, what should we pray about? They just got down on their knees and got to business with God. And here's this impressionable 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old kid seeing these men praying like this. I will never forget it. I think of that when I think of this term, earnestly praying before God with force and with heart and with soul and with mind. He didn't, the king didn't say, oh, I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to have a national day of prayer or we ought to have a 40-day prayer and fasting program. No, no, no. Just get down on your knees and do business with God pour out to him your requests and your praises and your admiration. Secondly, the edict demanded that the people discontinue their wicked lifestyle. The second part of verse 8 makes that clear. The king recognized that mourning was not enough. He shows amazing wisdom in that he wants everyone to turn from evil to good. Now we run into this term, turn. It just carries the day here, almost. I think another one is more vivid. It is a common word that means turn or repent, but as one author said it, I think very succinctly, 
It's the best word in the Old Testament for repent. So when you see that word, you need to think of it in that term. The edict also held out the hope that God would change his mind. I love the opening of verse 9. Who knows? <laughs> it shows that this matter was totally in God's hands. The king recognized that he was at the mercy of God. There's no hint of arrogance here. It's just, let's just get down on our knees and pray. Let's just be people who turn, who repent. And who knows what God might do? The Ninevites, the Ninevites if I might say it this way, crossed their fingers and just said, here's our hope. Here's what we're hoping for. The ESV translation is helpful here. It says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn. I don't like the, the New American Standard. Withdraw, it says, for that second term. Uh, the second word, turn. But it's turn, relent, and turn from his fierce anger so that, that we may not perish. If we turn, maybe God will turn too. That's what they're saying. If we repent, maybe God will repent too. And the king held out the hope also that God would relent. Huh. Like I mentioned, this is a more vivid term. It means to feel sorry or to have compassion. It's an emotional word. If you want to know what God feels, here's the way he feels. The, origi the, the, the origin of the word seems to have the idea of somehow breathing deeply. It's a display of feelings. So here's what he's hoping for. God will see what's going on here in these people, how they're changing and repenting and turning, and he'll look at it, and he'll take a deep breath and another deep breath, and he'll reconsider his decision to wipe them all out. That's what their hope is. So to be clear, verses 8 and 9 may be connected something like this. Who knows? We have repented now maybe God will change his mind too. They want God. They desperately want God to move toward compassion. Come to think about it, this is exactly the way we should approach God. We ought to ask God to do what he does not need to do. We ought to ask God, please God, discount for our humanness. So Jonah changed. Nineveh changed. That brings us to verse 10. The, sound, the second chance God is re-looked at here. This is the big deal. This is the climax to the whole section. God changed his mind, verse 10. The circumstance is clear. Just so there is no doubt about what happened, verse 10 repeats the fact that the Ninevites turned 180 degrees. It seems like Jonah wants everyone to understand that. In fact, there is a play on words there. They turn from their wickedness is the same term translated calamity that God had determined to do. In other words, normally wickedness begets wickedness. But here, wickedness didn't beget wickedness. Just the opposite happened. So the change is described. Verse 10 answers the king's question. If we change... 
do you suppose God would change? Yes, that's the answer. God will change. Now, the NIV captures this, I mean, excuse me, the New American Standard captures this cause and effect emphasis by translating the two particles, two participles, uh, two particles, I'll say it, with when and then. I don't know why the other translations leave that out. When and then. When they turned, then he relented. He moved from burning anger to compassion. Now, the term turn is not repeated in verse 10. Did you notice that? But what is repeated? The term relent. This is a wonderful, wonderful quality of God. God does not take joy in punishing sin. He is not gleeful when he has to punish rebels. That's not God. It can be said that this God, according to this term, after a deep breath, maybe even counting to 10 or 45,000, who knows, after pausing and thinking matters through, is overcome with sorrow and changes his mind about venting his wrath. There's no other way to describe it than that. This is exactly what Jonah expected might happen in chapter 4, verse 2. And he was not happy about that. He just knew this God. This is the way God has chosen to deal with people like us. God says, repent or die. We repent and we live. Now that brings us to a kind of a quandary. I know you're probably thinking about it. Perhaps you've wondered how this could be. You recall that the Bible clearly, clearly teaches that God is immutable. God does not change. I mean, the prophets said it. Many other passages say it. Malachi says it this way. For I, the Lord, do not change. Can't be stated more clearly than that. I do not change. So what's up? How can we somehow explain this? Simply put, Verses 9 and 10 employ language that describes God in human terms so that we can make better sense of things. For instance, God does not take breaths. For instance, he sees, but he doesn't have eyes. For instance, he's not surprised at anything. Nevertheless, from a human perspective, these things are so as we look at things practically from a human perspective, understanding theologically what the matters are of his immutability, we see the concept of God changing. The last sentence of verse 10 is what I call the wow statement. And he did not do it. And he did not do it. This is the granddaddy of them all summary of the whole passage and of a wonderful concept of what God does. And he did not do it. It's really one verb with just a negative in front of it. And the verb means actuality or reality. So, for instance, back in chapter 1, verse 9, God actually made the sea. Verse 10 Jonah actually fled from God. Verse 11, the sailors wanted to know what they could actually do to calm the storm. Verse 14, God actually 
does whatever he wants to do. But here, in chapter 3, verse 10, it's used with a negative particle in front of it, and it's like this. He actually did not do what he had determined to do. It's a vivid concept. He actually did this. No sense arguing around it. He actually did this. He voided his decision to destroy. He had determined to bring death. Now he brings life. You talk about hope. This kind of God is the God we're dealing with, not only in Jonah's day, but today as well. It's at the very heart of God. It's who he is. He will always cancel eternal punishment upon genuine repentance. And from a human perspective, repentance changes everything. Indeed, his determined decision to punish the evildoers like us is certain, but he relents. He offers the chance to repent, and then when we do repent, he cancels the determined punishment. Without the notion of an unchanging God who changes, we are doomed. I know that sounds like double talk. But without that notion, we're sunk. We should rejoice and have great hope that this is the kind of God that we serve and worship. Now, how do we draw all this stuff together? What's the so what? What ought we to do? Let me give you five things. First of all, smile. Yeah, smile. Go ahead, you can try it. Smile. It should put a spring in your step and a smile on your face to know that these things are true of God. This is the God whom you worship. Speaking of worship, that would be a second conclusion. Grateful worship should be our response. This is very personal. God actually, if I might use that concept, relented on my behalf. He actually did. He died to give me life instead of certain damnation. Moses is perhaps a model for us on this. According to Exodus chapter 34, when God revealed himself to Moses in a similar way, same kinds of phrases that are found in Jonah. We are told in verse 8, Jonah, I mean uh, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. What stark contrast between Moses and Jonah? Jonah pouted and sulked and slithered away and had a pity party with himself. Don't be like Jonah. Be like Moses and respond to this great God with worship. Third would be genuine humility. We don't deserve this kind of God, let's be honest. Paul urges his readers not to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Here's the truth. We are all undeserving rebels that God saves anyway. And we, like Jonah, possess a tendency to stonewall God. That's just the truth. And we ought to accept it and ought to develop in our lives a genuine, not pseudo, but a genuine humility. 
Four, bold confidence. Our God never ceases to be who he is. He is a second chance God. So now, no matter how badly you blow it, or if a non-Christian you may be, no matter how vehement your rejection of him has been, you can grab his second chance. You really can. He offers do-overs. Why not claim it, dear friend? And last, be sure to smile as you consider and contemplate this great God. Heavenly Father, after encountering this brief bit of redemption history, we rejoice anew that you are in the rescuing business. Both temporal and eternal salvation belongs to you, Lord, as Jonah so clearly says. And you do this in mysterious and wondrous ways that perfectly align with your awesome character. Furthermore, dear Lord, we know that if you were not a second chance God, we would be despairing, if not doomed. But you are. How we thank you. So as we marvel at your relenting mercy, we rejoice that you did not do it. Hallelujah and amen. I'd like us to close today by standing. Before you turn and greet one another, could you please stand? Before you greet one another and then are dismissed, I'd like us to say in unison, I know that there's a sparse crowd here, but we can fill the place up with some volume. I'd like us to say in unison these words, he did not do it. Are you up to that? All right, you ready? One, two, three. He did not do it. Pretty good start. Let's try it again. Okay, ready? ready? One, two, three. He did not do it. Amen. You are dismissed.